0: Welcome to A Year on Tour with Wittinghus. Here's your host, Hans Christian Wittinghus.
1: I know I promised you guys this episode a bit sooner, but as I say, better late than never. So here's my part two of my best of 2020 series. Today you'll hear from Janu Jørgensen, Gail Ems, Michelle Lee, the Pedersen, Chris Popov and Tony Gunnermann. Not a bad line. But before we get to that, I have to welcome my latest Patron Antonio. I appreciate your support so much and also from all of you other Patrons out there. We are now on a total of 33 Patrons, so I would love it if we could hit 35 by the end of the month or maybe even close in on 40. I'm allowed to dream right as always you'll get access to guest episodes uh, early access to guest episodes as a patron just as you'll have a chance of winning prizes like signed shirts rackets vitamin Wills, zoom calls with me and much more for as little as one dollar a month I'm so grateful for any amount you can send my way, for me it gives a whole lot of motivation and it also helps covering the cost of hosting, advertising and upgrade, upgrading the podcast in general. And it's always completely up to you how much you donate and how long you donate for, there's no binding whatsoever. So go to patreon.com slash patreon spelled p-a-t-r-e-o-n, if you want to join as a supporter of this podcast oh and stay tuned at the end of the episode today where i will reveal the winners of all the december prizes now enough talk about supporting the podcast let's get to what it's all about talking about badminton In the first bit today, I asked Janu Jørgensen why he decided to retire at the age of 32 when he could have easily carried on for at least a few more years. He went on to explain it in detail, all the thoughts that went into his decision and how the current pandemic also played a part.
2: Yeah, yeah, I know it's a bit early compared to some of our, you know, um, colleagues around the world and... Uh, but after i had the injury in 2017 with my heel which cost me like almost a whole year um i already started you know thinking about you know, what what's gonna happen afterwards and what is you know and and so, so these these thoughts and all these you know the thinking about what is after started already there and uh, so 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 it's not. It's been like a long process. I wouldn't say that it's been going on ever since, but but I would say that because I made like quite good return, and you know got into like around top twenty in the world, which I think was was it's quite good, and uh, and and I was quite happy with that. Um, but it's it has also been a struggle to be honest, because when you really have been at the highest, and and every time you went to a tournament, you have been around the quarters or at least around there, and you know that okay. If I do well, I'll. If I play my worst or something like that, I would be able to lose in the first rounds. But I have a good shot at at least getting around the weekend uh, at at my best level. So 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 it has been tough to to accept that that okay right now my level is first round second round and if I do really well I have a chance of maybe going semis or quarterfinals mm-hmm. because I think that you know when I was out the the whole level with. Momota coming in and changing, changing the level and changing. Also, I think with Victor actually at that point, 17, 18, you know, playing so well and taking over from some of the uh, the legends, uh, you know, which just retired. So I think that the level has also raised a little bit in that time. At least, a di- at least a change of style, I think, and that has been tough for me to settle. Um, and um, so I'm it's actually, been I'm actually going to
1: ask more about that later in the interview yeah, as well because I think that's yeah, that's but, very uh, very interesting.
2: Yeah, but it's but 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 with that with that and with, with injuries, I also had the hip thing going on. Actually, when we won Thomas Cup, I was really injured, and uh, <laughs> just got the just got the message right before that. Okay, you got You got to get a surgery. You got to do mm-hmm. it right now, or you got to get it after the Olympics. And I was like how How can I do that? and then I, then I, everybody knows that I decided not to take it, and then I had like two or three good years, but the hip kept coming after I got the heel thing going on, so it has been like a, a passion for me ever since I started my comeback. My left hip hasn't really been good, and I also I also saw some patterns with opponents starting to you know do deep shots in my in my backhand, and, uh, okay. and <laughs> didn't really like that. Um, but uh, so you know no, my movement hasn't been as good as it was before, and and all these things you know kept putting things in the, adding things in the back. Yeah, so and I I, I, remem- tough and tough. I
1: remember yeah I remember uh, reading an interview or seeing a TV interview. I don't remember which one it was, but where you uh, you said something about you you play to win the titles. Uh, so I can understand that it's maybe difficult for your motivation if you feel like you were used to competing for the titles every time and then nowadays it's as you say more that if you do really well you can think about quarterfinals or semifinals but you're maybe not in real contention of uh, of winning the big titles and if that's a big part of your motivational factor then for me it makes a good sense that you don't want to devote all of your time to uh, to the project of badminton anymore
2: yeah yeah and yeah because it's it's it is so fragile in in a way that that when you say you want to compete for the titles, you know, what, what, there's a lot in between, I think, you know, mm. because the process is also a big part of it. And I always loved the process of trying to get there. And, 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 and when you start to think more about getting there than the process, then, then it becomes blurry. And then what do you play for and all these things. And, and I just felt that it was a bit too much for me that the, that the gap was getting longer and longer and longer. And, and I started to think about, okay, um, I knew I did, like, almost everything I could in my way. Um, and I tried to adapt to new ways of training and all that stuff, but it really didn't pay off. And I, and I think I tried that a really long time. And I think I can say that I, I gave, like, my everything in order to get back at that level, but it just wasn't enough. And, uh, you know... Young guys is coming and taking over the scene and, and, and let's just think it got, you know, it got too much at some point. And also with, actually also with the Corona going on, you know, I have had my eyes set for Thomas Cup in Denmark, which is like a huge, huge thing. And uh, and then I would see what what's going to happen afterwards. And when when that was taken away from us all, um, it also got a kind of an extra, you know, thing in the back that made it more maybe
1: Sped up the process a, a little yeah. bit. Exactly, exactly. I simply had to take along another bit from my talk to Jan as he really opened up and had lots of brilliant, brilliant stories to tell. So I do recommend that you go listen to the full interview again or for the first time if you haven't already listened to it. Anyway, in this second bit, you will be hearing him answer my question about the mental side of his game which i saw as a strength for him sometimes with all his epic comebacks but also sometimes it could be a weakness a weakness for him compared to the likes of Wei, lin dan and the other guys who were a bit more consistent than him and of course yan was shy of sharing his thoughts on this very openly
2: It's always been like a like a thing for me that I was thriving on my, you know, that energy of really wanting to win and, and also having like a high level of, uh, you know, self-critique or what you call it. But, yeah. you know, I was pushing myself a lot in, in that area and I wanted to do nothing but the best. And I think that, I think you're totally right that because it's been something I've been working on like forever, you know, uh, trying to controlling all these things and emotions that that really wanting to do well um and you know so many times i have like you know the you know, if it had gone out of hand and i've you know i've got so angry on myself and all these things so so for sure i'm 100 yeah 100 percent. it's been like a thing um and you get older and you get like you know it, it tweaks a little bit it gets like different things you you kind of uh, but, but the same raw energy of, of really wanting to do well and have like this high level of uh, self-critique or wanting to do well has been like a, a thing for me all the time. But I also think that, you know, I also, you know, when it really looked like you said, you know, I had these crazy comebacks when it really been most dark and I've, I have been already out, you know, I have found something in these times, you know, with that raw energy. I remember one with... With uh, Jonathan Christie in Indonesia, where I lost the first set and I was behind big, and I was the bigger favorite at that time, and and I, I just I really yeah, played like shit in the in the second set, and he just killed me. I couldn't get a point, and then suddenly I was just you know I just tried to you know I tried to look him in the eyes and I tried to do something and and get a fist going you know and and suddenly I just suddenly. The audience was just booing at me and in a normal situation you'll feel like okay this is not good you don't want to do that in Indonesia because that can get like really hot if you don't want to get the you're not going to get the audience against you in that because you can feel like you're choking many players have done that you know that's also some of the biggest uh, with you know with the audience in the back for the Indonesian players they they can walk on water sometimes but it suddenly I was just thriving on that, you know, all that negativity coming at me, you know, they you know, they always loved me in there and, you know, pushing me on and because I won that tournament earlier and, you know, they they do s- seem to like all the things and then suddenly it was against me and it just worked. I was just thriving on it and I you know, I just kept pumping my fist and they hated it but you know and but then you know and then suddenly I won and I felt so bad afterwards because I was just being like an asshole on court and uh, and you know but uh, but you know then then I really loved the way Christy he handled it he was like he just I just saw after, for him afterwards you know hmm. uh, okay, well well done yeah uh, uh, clever mental game I need to yeah. learn from this because that's one of my weaknesses and you can for sure say that uh, I got uh, you know in the last part of my career, you know, I was struggling so much with this guy. So you think you know
3: things uh, come yeah. around,
2: and um, hats off <laughs> to Christy being for being <laughs> being matured <laughs> and uh, yeah, yeah. and kicking my ass like huge the last. Uh, so nothing but respect for this guy. But uh, that was also some of the things that could happen with me, you know, because thriving on some of the other things. So um, so it yeah, I think you're right that. If I had had like a better mentality, you know, or able to control that things, you know, I think I'll be more stable. But, you know, could also miss like a few huge comebacks. Uh, But um, yeah, we'll never know. No, 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 no. But I think it's quite interesting uh, to
1: hear that for the listeners and especially the young players that are out there, that mentality is still something you need to work on, even with the level you've been at. You've been the second highest ranked player in the world. You won Mm. some of the biggest titles. Uh, but you yeah. still say that it's something you've been working on for your entire career. And yeah. uh, it's for sure my view that it's the same for every player. It's also the same for yeah. Lin Dan and for Lee Chung Wei. They also have mental issues. They just yeah. handle them better than uh, the rest of us do. Uh,
2: yeah, and when you're young, you, you, you don't really know what it is. You just do things and you just, you know, uh, get worked up or anything or something like that. But, but when you get older, you know all these things and you know exactly where you're at. But it can still be difficult to control these ways of emotions. So, so when you get older, you just you just much more knowledge, you're much more knowledge about where and when and how you get there, and you know exactly. Then that's also some of the things why it feels a little bit bad. You know, it feels bad when you when you don't succeed in controlling yourself when you know all these things. So, um, but yeah, it's it's a really important thing, and like you said, and all the young guys out there, they should just like. Uh, yeah it's something you gotta work with all the best players do and uh, yeah it's a thing
1: on a previous podcast i had asked nathan robertson if he preferred his olympic silver or world championship gold he said that him and gail ems always answered that question differently so of course i had to test that statement when i spoke to gail myself her answer still caught me by surprise, as I could not imagine anyone feel like she did while producing such huge results. But she explained it really well, and it turned into a real interesting discussion. So listen up.
4: So I'm I'm pretty sure, so I'm not, because um, when we get asked this, he would say world gold and I would say Olympic silver. Um the reason why I say Olympic silver is because um, that spurred me on. Um, There's lots of reasons about, there's lots of feelings and emotions about that Olympic silver. Um, And one of them for me, the overriding feeling and emotion for me was that I was the weakest person on that court. And I vowed that I would never, and it was all mental. I vowed that I would never, ever feel like that again. And I changed the whole it, it changed me massively. It changed me in the way I thought, the way I approached things, the way I saw badminton, I saw my life. And it literally gave me such an, a boost that the rest all came because of the Olympic silver. And so that, for me, I appreciate that more. Because if I hadn't have got through, gone through that moment, I wouldn't, we, we wouldn't have won that world gold. Because I, I had to go through something quite it was it was devastating and I can't watch that Olympic final I've never watched it I can't I can't watched it lots of times but I can't because I know how I felt but the reason why we won everything else is because of what yeah that that moment and the Olympic silver so I I even though I don't like it because it's silver it actually was the biggest turning points in my in my badminton career
1: yeah, all right, all right. That's a pretty, uh, pretty good story, actually, to, uh, to why you <laughs> would say that. And it, it's often like that, right, that you, you learn more from your defeats than you do actually from, uh, from your wins. And, and that makes yeah. you also enjoy the wins even more because you know you had that tough moment there. Yeah,
4: yeah totally. Uh, to, to, to and Nathan – so Nathan was already a big, a big star in Robinson then, and I wasn't so much. And I always felt that I was, oh, Nathan, oh, and he's playing with that girl, yeah. Gail. And I, and that's the reason why, you know, I feel that we got silver and not gold is because I felt lucky to be on that court. I felt lucky to be on the court with the others. And I just went, no, that's it. Never, ever feel like that again. I deserve to be in that final. I deserve to be on that place. I deserve to be next to Nathan Robertson, and everything is equal. So yeah, it is, you, you do learn huge amounts and, and you have different feelings when you, the world gold, I felt, yeah. We should have won that, so we did. And I, I didn't feel like it's massive, oh, oh, my God, I'm a world champion. I felt like, well, yeah, we should have won that, so we did. Mm. So it is a very different feeling. Uh, but I know Nathan, for him, that was one, because he'd lost in the final before with mm. Simon Arch in the men's double. So I know for him that world gold is a massive, massive deal for him as well.
1: Yeah, and I think also because you you played the Worlds in uh, 05 in, in Anaheim and you were, you were seeded yeah. one, or you were supposed to play, right? But you, you had to pull out uh, just before the tournament started because Nathan rolled his angle.
4: I know, there's always something, isn't it? I and mean, it literally, I thought he was joking around. I really did. And I thought he was messing around like he does. And mm-hmm. then he just sort of went, I can't get up. And I went, you're kidding me you're absolutely kidding me so yeah I did feel that it was you know we were meant to win a world championships and um, mm. yeah obviously the 05 was probably the one we, sh- we we were expected to win but yeah made up for it in 06.
5: Mm.
1: Talking about like that you felt like the lesser player on court in the, in the Olympics I'm wondering did you also feel like that going into the tournament that you like, did you not feel confident that you had a, actually a shot at the at the medals at that time? Because you you were no. already a world class pair, weren't you? At that time, yeah.
4: But we were fourth. We were ranked fourth, and and as the seedings to say, like Ra Min and Kim Dong Moon were the number one seeds. So everyone, like, no one had beaten them for like two years, I think it was. And obviously you had Gao Ling and Zhang Jun, and that was just the final. Everyone, there was no other. No one else was even you know, considered and everyone else was scrapping around for that outside chance of a bronze medal. And, and that's realistically what we thought. So obviously, uh, Jonas Ricky Olsen, Jonas, Ricky Olsen decided to beat be, <laughs> which we were just like, Oh my God. So um that gave us that bit of hope. Sorry Denmark. Um, but it didn't give us that bit of hope to kind of like think that then we had that chance. So yeah, no, I didn't expect to get a medal. It, it, it was this real Okay, we might have that outside chance, I and mean, if that, it would just be a bronze. So yeah, to 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 get into the final and then to be so close to the gold as well, that kind of makes it even more of a learning curve, I guess, because you get so close, you can almost taste it, and you kind of want to kick yourself a little bit and just go, oh, if mm. only. But then, what would have come afterwards? If yeah, you just don't know. So.
1: Michelle Lee was definitely another interesting guest to have on as she has experienced badminton closely in both the Pan Am region, Europe and in Asia. So I asked her about what training style suited her best of those three, but also how important it is to experience different badminton cultures and training regimes when you are from a small badminton nation like Canada.
3: In the beginning when I was younger it was more the Asian style because even though I am from the Pan Am region I was brought up by a Hong Kong coach so all I knew was kind of the Asian style and then the more I traveled the more I was exposed to other different types of training I went to Denmark I trained with the national team and I played for the league and was able to kind of understand how um, players from Denmark were also so good because they use a totally different type of training that I was never used to. So it's, I guess for me, it's just about putting everything together and just finding, it's almost like a trial and error, finding what works for me, what doesn't. So I, I want to say that I'm in the middle <laughs> right now. Yeah. Like um, In the past, it was always about volume. And then I learned the importance of quality so then it's about putting that together now for myself. Um, so, yeah, I wouldn't say that there's one specific style that I'm like, that's suitable for me. I'm still kind of figuring out what the balance is. Mm. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that, that that makes good sense to me. And, and actually, my next, quest, next question was also going to be like, you, you come from a relatively small badminton nation, uh, Canada. I think it's uh, safe to say that without uh, offending uh, anyone. Mm-hmm.
4: Um.
1: Would you say it's it's very important when you come from a, a country like Canada to actually get that kind of inspiration uh, and experience other cultures and, and training regimes uh, to, to succeed to the level that you're at at the moment?
3: Uh, definitely, because like I said, for me, it always has been trial and error. And I kind of wish that it wasn't because I would have saved so much time if I had somebody else to kind of guide me, like a coach to guide me. Because um, – when I go to these Asian places or when I go to Europe and I am exposed to these um, different types of trainings, I'm only getting a taste of it. I'm not actually getting the full, I guess, um, program to help me build using that kind of style. So um, it's not as complete as say somebody who is in Asia, who's who has been following that training program since they were a junior. So if I use everything if I try to just copy what they're doing I'm not getting the I'm not understanding the full um I guess um point of what they're doing I'm just kind of doing it because oh they're doing it, so I should do it mm. so it's it's kind of tough because I don't have a coach to kind of explain to me and guide me why I'm doing certain things so yeah, because which is when, you,
1: when you travel to Europe for example when you trained at the Danish National Center you, you didn't have a coach with you right you, you were there on your no. own yeah Uh, so so do you you must have struggled a bit to to kind of adapt i I guess that that's what you're 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 uh, you're talking about here
3: yeah like they would have coaches working with them kind of explaining to them why you're doing this and this Mm -hmm. or like why we're doing this amount of time for this amount of sets and what -hmm. you're building towards but i'm kind of just following along um but it's so it's not very suited for me i'm just doing what they're doing um sometimes not knowing why I'm doing it so it's just about trying to figure out why I'm doing certain things and I guess because I did not have that coach to guide me or follow me all the time um it's the the path is not always as as, as straight as I want it to be.
1: Mm. Do you think that's also in some ways maybe helped you become a like wiser badminton player because you, you've had to find the solutions and understand things more on your own you you haven't had that uh, person to guide you all the way and and yeah tell you what's right and wrong you have to figure it out on your, on your own
3: yeah for sure i think in the in the long run i think it's better for my own development because um i would be more exposed to uh, situations where i need to adapt and adjust on my own so i think in the long run i think that builds me as an athlete much better um but I think in terms of me peaking, it might take a, a little longer time than other athletes, but I think um, there's, there's good to both. So, yeah.
1: The next bit is from an episode with Steen Schleichner-Pedersen, who for me is one of the most knowledgeable and interesting off-court personalities in badminton. He knows his stuff, and he's never shy of sharing his opinions, so I strongly recommend you all to go listen to that full episode if you haven't already. Anyway, in the bit you're about to hear, I asked Dane how he felt the game and field of women singles on world-class level has developed over the past 5-10 years. Of course, he had a brilliant response, which led to several follow-up questions.
0: well it's, it, it's it's developed in a way that um, other countries apart from China have gotten the belief that it can be done it's actually po- possible to uh, to challenge uh, china i think it started um, slowly with um, with the emergence of of uh, tina Baum in uh, 2007 when when she won her first super series before that, there's only been a few players outside China who's been able to challenge the Chinese. We talked about Susie Susanti from Indonesia, mm-hmm. uh, Bang Su-hyun from Korea, and uh, Camilla Martin. Um, but it was only for a very, very short while, and then they sort of um, faded away again, and there were no one else from the country to to keep the tradition going. Um, so Tina, she, um, she brought up, um, or, or gave some hope to players like Julian Schenk, who also did very well uh, and suddenly got the belief that hey we can beat the Chinese players who'd seem uh, invincible uh, up until that um, time. Also some um, uh, German Chinese players and uh, Perhaps also Dutch Indonesians like Mia Odina and so on started to to challenge, but the, but the big uh, breakthrough came in 2013 when um, Ratchanok Intanon uh, mm-hmm. won the world championships as an 18-year-old in China, defeating the Olympic champion Li Rui in the final. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, now now I would say we have like. 10, maybe even 15 players who are
1: competitive at the highest level. Maybe not 15 who can win the biggest events, but you have at least, I would say, 10 players who can actually, yeah. who actually do that.
0: And, and the ones in contention, they have to be aware of at least players down to around uh, 16, perhaps even a little f- uh, further down the world ranking list. So uh, it's so much fun to watch the women's singles at the moment.
1: Yeah, I would also say it's a very healthy development for, for badminton in general, and I personally don't see any signs that it would go back to what it was before, with China really dominating or Japan really dominating, like a single country dominating. Do you see any signs of that happening?
0: Uh, no, I, I, I think I think it's a very healthy uh, situation because it's also about uh, a lot about uh, having the belief that you can. So, so to break the. Um, um the old habits and saying okay we don't play women singles in denmark or in indonesia wherever it is now everybody has to believe that okay if um if rachina can do it so can we if carolina can do it from spain uh, a country that's not uh, a normal uh, strong badminton uh, country then it's possible to do it and um and that, that's um, just so enjoyable. I still think China has some uh, good women singles players, and they have a lot of talent in China and a lot of resources. So I also think that um, this uh, emergence of a lot of internationals in badminton also coincided with the Chinese national team taking a dip after the Olympics in uh, in 2012 and uh, not producing uh, as well as we've used to see them do.
1: Mm. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Do you have any uh, uh like one of the things I admire about you, Steen, is that you always seem to have a great foresight of what's going to happen. Uh, or at least you always you always have an opinion about it.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah.
1: So I would like to know if you see any specific way that you think women singles will develop in the future. What's going to be the key attributes for a women singles player to be competitive at the world class level? So we are talking top ten, top fifteen.
0: Yeah, um, I mean we've seen uh, players adapt to the challenges. Uh, one of the um, one of the keys for athletes is that whenever the stakes are, are higher, when the bars are raised, the athletes adapt. So we saw that um, in in 2016 at the Olympics, a player like Tai Su Ying, she was probably lacking a little bit on, on the physical part of the game. But suddenly that got fixed and, and she got in really, really good shape and became the dominant uh, player in, the, um, in some of the World Tour tournaments. Um, yeah. We've seen uh, Carolina Marin set the standards in terms of physicality with a um, very fast-paced uh, attacking game. So players adapt to that. Uh, develop their defense and try to attack Marin where, where she has uh, her weak spots and so on. So it it goes in waves, more or less, that um, now we see, uh, again, Tai Su Ying back uh, at top level, but we've also seen Chen Fei from China, who is a very complete player without um, big uh, weaknesses, but perhaps also without big... Um, Uh, weapons uh, so to speak so she can adapt to a number of um, her opponents so we're going to see more players that are uh, going to get better at adapting and a more complete playing style I think basically women's singles is is following um, the traits in in men's singles um, where it takes a couple of years uh, to to emulate what's happening in uh, in men's singles, but but I think that's actually where the the standard is being set, and then it it, um, it sort of um, transforms to women's singles uh, at a little um, time delay.
1: The final two parts you're going to hear in this best off 2020 episode are not very long but still something i found quite cool to hear about the first of the two is a clip with the young gun christo popov actually one of my most listened to episodes i'm asking him if it if it isn't sort of cool to have your dad as your coach as must give them lots of amazing experiences together like traveling the world pursuing a common goal and so on i also wondered if he sometimes saw it as a disadvantage but he clearly didn't
5: Yeah, it's it's like his work to to come with us and uh, and coach us as my also our father. And it's good that he has that two faces of coach and father because we can tell like everything we everything in our head we can tell to him, and uh, we can really talk easily. And that I think that's a pretty good uh, thing to have between a coach and a player.
1: So you never see it as a like a disadvantage that it's difficult because it's also your dad. So maybe it's difficult for him to be hard on you because he also loves you just as a son.
5: Yeah, but um, it's like the opposite. We like he is hard on us sometimes, but uh, we know it's for our good. And uh, Mm. because it's our father and he will never like do it for just make us angry or everything. But we know it's for our best and uh, that uh, that's the good uh, the good thing that is my also my father.
1: Yeah. Okay. So you actually think he can be even harder than a, maybe a a normal coach would uh, would be with you guys? Yes.
5: Sometimes he can push harder uh, on us than the other players.
1: The absolutely final part I'll play for you from my 2020 guest episodes is with the one and only Tony Gunawan. The episode with Tony is still far and beyond my most listened to episode, so obviously I had to share something from that chat. The clip I chose is where I asked Tony what he sees as the main differences between Japanese and Indonesian men's doubles. I obviously asked this as Tony has quite a bit of experience with both as he is currently also coaching the Japanese Tonami team. His answer to the question relates a lot to cultural differences and I really find the entire episode to be very interesting from that perspective as Tony has lived many years in the US as well. So that would be my final recommendation. Please go listen to the full episode with Tony. It is well worth your time. He's just such a legend.
6: Uh, I think um, Indonesian uh, more of uh, being creative, you know, being brave to make mistakes. I think make mistake is okay, but, you know, of course, most of us doesn't want to make mistakes, but it kind of like be, being okay to make mistakes, which is in Japan, it, mistake is a little bit kind of like um, they afraid to make mistakes. We mm. kind like a bit uh uh
3: I so maybe they they, they play
1: a little more yeah. safe with like more speed yeah. and power speed power so yeah.
6: uh we just need to be a little bit more uh creative but mm. but their their ethic of training working is is one of the best so uh i think if we can combine those culture i think that's why uh, they have party bong being the head coach and then some uh, indonesian coach and then malaysian coach i think will help them uh, you know, to be have kind of like different angle, different uh, perspective from other culture also, uh, but they do they do have uh, the best training, which is the working very hard. So they're doing the same. Even you know, uh, for for us, it's like boring training. They're doing it like very good. So I think that can be bring to Indonesian also. Yeah, <laughs> because a lot of us we're not really disciplined. we just like we play around too much. I think, and as Indonesian, I when I play, I I try this, try that, try this, try that. Um, sometimes yeah. it's too much, you know. Uh, so, uh, I think. Uh, but again, like coach, being coaching in US, which is one of the hardest uh, uh culture uh, I I encounter, you know. Like in Indonesia, in Asia, I think mostly you just. You just need to say something, then the players kind of follow. Uh, but over here, we need to explain to them, we need to explain to their parents, which is, <laughs> which is a lot of time, it's harder than the students. So, <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, so uh, I really enjoy uh, uh, coaching in Japan, uh, in Tsunami Club. It's, uh, it's a good team. Uh, so, yeah. yeah. W-
1: which doubles team is the best one in Tsunami Team?
6: Kabula uh, and, so- uh, and then and then you have hockey and uh,
1: before I let you all go, it's time to find the winners of the prizes I promised for the month of December. So with me here, I have a plastic bag with names of all my patrons, one note with the name per dollar you support with. And of course, the same person can only win one prize per month. All right. Let me draw the third prize winner, who will win one case of 12 Vitamin Wills. And I'm getting out one name. And the first winner is Denis Eversteig. Second prize winner and winner of Vitamin Wills. I have one name here and it's a signed shirt. This person is winning and it is Rainer Kalliume. Congrats guys. And finally, the winner of the first prize, which is a FZ Forza racket, a signed shirt, and a 15-minute Zoom call, if you want. The winner of this prize, drawing the last one here, is Yves Lacroix. So, Yves, I will uh, look forward to uh, to talk to you. Haven't talked to you for quite a while, so that would be nice. So, congrats, guys, all of you. That means the prizes will be going to Holland, Estonia and Canada this time. So that's real nice to have such a global group of listeners and supporters. I'll contact the winners directly. So all that's left for me is to say thanks for listening everyone. And a extra big thank you to my lovely patrons.
0: Thank you for listening to A Year on Tour with Vittinghus. If you enjoyed the show, please rate, share and leave a comment in iTunes or your preferred podcast app.